All right. So now that you uh, are at Matthew chapter nine, last Sunday I joked, but I wasn't joking that I had two and a half messages, um, and so we just decided to teach like one and a quarter of them last Sunday. So this Sunday I'm going to teach the last one and a quarter, and it's going to be four verses at the very end of Matthew chapter nine. We're going to look at verses thirty-five through thirty-eight. And this will close out this chapter here of Matthew chapter 9. There's going to be a little bit of overlap this morning from last week, but I think it's necessary to kind of bridge this gap and take us through. So now that you also have your bulletin open to the correct cover, right? Now that you know that the cover is a cover, you may have been looking at that and going, what, what are, what exactly is, is I, am I holding it right side up or upside down? What you're looking at is from the perspective of someone standing where they shouldn't be standing when this rocket takes off. Uh, in the well, uh, where this rocket will be launched. It's a Soyuz rocket. It's, uh, built in Russia. It launches from Kazakhstan. And, uh, that's what it looks like when it's transported. And so that picture was taken when it's been, uh, brought straight upright and it, it's taken from the, the launch well, if you will, where all the flames and all that happen. And so, um, this, um, this rocket has been in the news. And probably its failure recently has been in the news. Three astronauts uh, were on board and uh, they were on their way to the International Space Station. Uh, two, sorry, two astronauts were on board and uh, one of those four rockets on the sides fell off and then the booster rocket failed to ignite. And so they, they're all riding in that capsule, the little triangle cone-like thing up at the very front there. And you're sitting on top of a bomb. It's what you're sitting on. It's a controlled explosion. You're hoping the explosion goes to the back <laughs> and you go up towards, towards the sky and into space. But it's a controlled explosion. There's no way to get around how dangerous it is. And as much as we try to minimize the danger, you're lighting a fire to a bomb. And so we've seen in history, there's been tragedies that have definitely happened. But boy, there's something to be said when a rocket actually takes off. I wish I had got a chance to see a rocket take off in Florida. Maybe some of you, if you've ever been to Cape Canaveral or down there and you've seen it, uh, what a sight that must have been. And more, I think more importantly, to feel it. I've heard people describe like just feeling a rocket launch taking off and you feel it happening. Imagine if you're sitting on top of it as it's taking off. And so, yes, I remember, as a, especially in grade school with the space shuttle, I remember Krista McAuliffe and, you know, seeing the Columbia and then also like the Challenger tragedies that happened. You know, you, you watch and you realize, okay, th- this may work or this may not work. And then to see it work and to take off is amazing. But maybe if you watched a launch before, maybe you're just like, that's boring. I don't watch launches. There's times where it's like, okay, I'm going to tune. It's like five minutes till. All right, here we go. Here we go. And you're waiting and then all of a sudden, oh, nope. And you hear all these people, you know, fuel, go, uh, telemetry, go, uh, navigation, go. You know, you have all these people in different areas saying, go, go. All my lights are green. We can go. And all these people are working together like a symphony so that at the right moment, this rocket can take off. But all it takes is one of them to say, no, go, stop. And what happens then with that countdown is the countdown stops. At which point it's like, ah. Oh, Man, okay, well, I guess they're going to have to try again. But the awe man, while it's discouraging, you realize somebody's life or lives would be at stake. So it's a good thing that they stopped. We have a couple pictures of this like 
preparation to launch. I think we have one of them like, this is what we, this is what like you're looking for is, yes, the rocket is taking off. It's headed towards space. But there's a lot of steps that lead up to that. I printed a short abbreviated list and I had to shrink my font size down so that it all fit on one page. And these are like a, an abbreviated list of things that are required for that to happen. The first thing on this list is 34 hours, T minus 34 hours. You start getting ready to fuel the rocket almost three days before liftoff. There's people working hard and putting in long hours fueling the rocket. T minus eight hours and 30 minutes. The crew wakes up eight and a half hours before liftoff. The crew wakes up. And then a few different things happen. Countdown happens and all that other stuff. They put on their suits, T minus four hours and 20 minutes. So they're in their suits for four and almost a half hours before they, t- they lift off. So they're putting the suit on and they can't do it by themselves. So they have a team of people to put the suits on for each of these folks. So then they've got their space suits and they're going to overheat in them. So they have their air conditioning units that they carry with them as they walk to the rocket. Otherwise, they cook in their own spacesuits. Then they get into the, um, the rocket. And I'm trying to find when they actually enter. I believe they enter something like, um, yes, they enter an hour and a half before it lifts off. So they're sitting for an hour and a half before liftoff. And I think we have another picture here. This next one here. You know, these crews here, these are called the gantries. These are the arms because, you know, you can't just put a rocket there and hope that it stays and not fall over. So you have these gantry arms. So they're extremely strong. And I mean, these workers are kind of dwarfed by the size of all of these arms that are there to hold. Now, it's great that they're strong to hold the rocket, but at the right moment, they have to move away because you don't want it to light and then them malfunction and not let the rocket go, which has happened before. So they have to work. So they're testing these to make sure, yes, does it release? Do they open? Do they move as fast? Do they move quickly enough? Okay, great. Everything's working there. So then over an hour before liftoff, the crew gets in. I think we have another picture here. And look at these spacious accommodations. Mm, look at that. Like that is just... Three, and there are three people here. There's one there who's seated a little forward. There's one here off the frame who's seated forward. And then there's the person, the commander, who's sitting seated back. And so he's got two people in front. And so he can't reach the buttons. So he has this stick that he uses to push the buttons from the center. And each of them on the sides have their own buttons as well that they're working. And they're packed in there. And if you're wondering, like, how are they sitting in this capsule? The cone of the capsule is up at the top of the screen and the heat shield is underneath them. So they're sitting with their backs to the earth and their eyes looking up, although they can't see anything from inside this capsule at this time. They're sitting like this for well over an hour before liftoff. They're anxious for liftoff to happen so that they can go. And all of these things happen and we usually watch it by T minus five and everything happens and we think it's wonderful and then the rocket takes off. Well, I was thinking about this. Sometimes for us in Christian ministry, we go, let's lift off. Let's start something new. Let's get it going. Because, boy, there's nothing like a liftoff. The excitement, the noise, the stu- you can see stuff happening. But the reality is to any liftoff, there's always a preparation that comes before it. So the title of this morning's message is Prepare to Launch. Today we're going to see Jesus preparing his disciples 
to send them out, but he's not sending them out yet. He's preparing them before he sends them out. And we're going to learn today preparation is very important. So the title is Prepare to Launch. Let's pray and we'll start in Matthew 9, verse 35. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the order and the structure that's in your word. We thank you that as we read through it, we can see a logical progression. We can see you leading us in your ways. We pray, God, that you would lead us and guide us through your word this day, that we would understand what you're saying to each of us. And if some of us are anxious this morning concerning something we think you're telling us to do in the future, Lord, we pray that we would focus on what you're calling us to prepare first before the launch. Lord, thank you so much for meeting us here. Lord, as we hear those sirens, we pray for those that are responding and we pray for whatever the condition is and situation is. Lord, you know. Lord, thank you that you know and that you're there. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Uh, let's start right there. Jesus has just been told discouraging words by the Pharisees. The Pharisees basically said, Jesus, you do miracles. We can't deny that, but you do them by the power of the devil. Okay. So then, what does Jesus do? Is he hurt and wounded and does he crawl into a hole? No. Matthew nine thirty-five. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Today we're going to see a king who does a couple different things. One thing that we're going to see, the first thing we see this morning is we see a king who serves. How awesome it is to see a king who serves. Sometimes the traditional thing that we see with a king who's serving is a king is at the throne. And you maybe have the queen at the side and then people come into the court and the king's like, yes. And all these you know, proceedings, it's almost like he's playing the, the role of the judge is what the king's doing. And maybe you get that idea of like, well, the king's got to learn how to sit in that chair really well because he's sitting in the chair a lot. But what we see here is we see a king that serves. A king that, even though he's been told something discouraging and people don't recognize he's the king, he doesn't stop, he keeps serving. Last week we really was, were um, highlighting this point that we as Christians, we should work hard. We should not be known as people who are lazy. We should be known as those who give our all because Jesus gave his all for us. You know, it says Jesus went through all of the villages and cities. Well, he was in the Galilee region during this time. Josephus said 204 cities, 3 million people in the Galilee region. Matthew says they went teaching into the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel and healing every disease and every affliction. That was throughout all the cities and villages. So Jesus went to all the cities and villages in the Galilee region over a few years. He was tireless. He continued to go walking, at times low on food, cold nights. Jesus shows us what it means to be hard at work. Um, there's a commentator, his name's D.A. Carson. He said this, There is nothing quite as tiring as constant ministry to people. And if you serve people for a period of time, you understand like, while you enjoy, if it's something you're doing, you really enjoy it. Afterwards, there's a moment where you're just like, okay, I'm tired now. Like I'm, it, it takes something out of you. Why? Because we're human. There, you end up using the resources that you have. And well, the most valuable one that you have is your time. Here's a secret about the pastor. The pastor has been known to take Sunday afternoon naps. Yes, the football game is on and Don's watching the football game and the kids are around and there may be two or three hours 
where it's just he's out. I mean, he has a spot in the corner, like deep couch sitting, like it's the corner of the couch, right? Oh, yeah, it's deep couch sitting. Like you're way, you're not even sitting anymore. Like the pillow's back there and the warm blanket's over and it's just like out. Drooling may even happen. Like it's just <laughs> out. There are times where, wait, are you saying that we're tiring to you? No, no, no. Don't put words in my mouth. What I'm saying is that the work of the ministry, it, you exert yourself when you do it. And so if you're going, man, I just feel so tired and wiped out after serving, that's not a bad thing. Jesus was tired. There was times where he had to withdraw from the people. He was meeting with the Lord. Jesus, remember in the storm on the Sea of Galilee? In that one storm, he was sleeping. How does a person sleep in a storm? He must have been tired. He must have been tired. And so this idea of, oh, I don't want to work too hard. That's not the model Jesus shows us. Jesus shows us a person who works hard and he's doing it in the power of the Lord. He's not doing it. He's not doing it uh, just for the sake of doing it. And that's the thing we have to find out is, well, I'm just going to work harder for the sake of working harder. No, no. Do what the Lord has called you to do and put your whole heart towards what God has called you to do. That same man who gave that comment that there's nothing quite as tiring as constant ministry to people. D.A. Carson, he was an intern at a church. And he was working, you know, many days during the week, I think approaching six days a week or something like that. And maybe a few weeks back to back of just serving people. Maybe it was at a camp, I think. And he's serving people over and again and again. So he decides, okay, he's got a day off. He can't wait. A day off from serving people. And so he goes to a beach nearby and he's like, ah, the beach. I have the beach to myself. For a few hours this day, it's just going to be great. And he's there, and all of a sudden, an entire group of high school students shows up. And he's like, they're so loud. They're all over the place. I had this section of the beach to myself, and now it's just packed with high school students. And he was looking for a place to rest, and he was getting frustrated. And then his mentor happened to arrive at that beach, too. And the mentor said, looking at the high school students, he looked at D.A. Carson, and he said, Will you believe it? Look at this opportunity to reach all these high school students. Same situation, two different perspectives. One from a perspective of, I'm just so tired. And another one going, will you look at the opportunities that are before us? This is what I appreciate about Jesus. He didn't just lay down his life at the cross. He laid down his life as he lived. He laid down his life towards people as he lived. He didn't just go, okay, listen, I'm not gonna stress, I'm not gonna, you know, work too hard here, because I'm gonna save my energy for the cross. That's not what you see here in the scriptures. You see Jesus giving his all. And so then in verse 36, no, stop, verse 35 still. Whatever you do, whatever work it is you do, you should do it as unto the Lord. If you're a student, you should be an excellent student in your grades. Your grades may not reflect that because maybe you're not, that's not your greatest strength. But here's what you should do as a student. You sh- your, your studies should reflect an excellent work ethic. What the results are, hey, they're going to be what they are. But you give it your best. But you don't have to be a student for that to apply. Whatever your job is. Well, my job is the same job day in and day out. Then you do your best day in and day out. If you go, well, this is what's expected of me. Okay, great. Is that your limit? This is what's expected of me. I'm only going to do this. I see there's other things that are clearly needed 
but I'm going to only go so far. No, Jesus, when he saw needs and he realized I could take care of that, I'm going to do that, he would just do it. There's something as really simple as uh, at Costco, Costco a couple of days ago, a few days ago actually, with one of the kids and saw a lady in one of those power chairs. She was going by and she was, you know, sampling the delicious snacks that they have, you know, the samples. And, uh, and she went to throw her like a little cup, paper cup away in the trash can and missed it. And you could just see like she was a little ways away and it was one of those and it was kind of like the look to one of the kids. It's like, what do you think you need to do right now? Like you see it. I saw it. We saw it. What do you do? Well, I got to go get that rotisserie chicken. So I'm going to leave that person. It's fine. They're in a power chair. They'll just back it up, grab it, put it in the trash. No, I see it. I didn't see it for no reason to walk up, grab it as, and she put it in the wrong direction first. So she started going forward and then she's, you know, kind of fumbling with it. I said, Hey, I got it. No problem. Grabbed it, threw it away. She goes, Oh, thanks. Okay. No worries. You know, I said, you're welcome. And just kind of walked away. And just for my child to go, so did you see that? Do you see what happened? Hey, next time you see that, just take care of it. Just take care of it. Don't wait for anybody else to take care of something that God has shown you needs to be taken care of. If you have the ability and you've seen it, guess what? Take care of it. Well, that's not my, here's the thing, in the world we live in, that's not my, what's the word that would get said? said? That's not my problem or that's not my job? Yes. That's not my problem. That's not my job. Christian, you are called to serve people. And sometimes that job description can be broad. So now we're at verse 36. When he saw, I got four verses, so I got to really you know, take my time with each one. Okay, here we go. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So if the last verse we saw a king who serves, then check it out here. In verse 36, we have a king who sees. He sees. How does he see things? He sees things the way they really are. You know, when Jesus saw the crowds, was he like D.A. Carson or like Jim Thomas or like you when we find ourselves going, it's been a long day. Oh, look at all these people. Oh, I just want to get away. I need a vacation. Jesus, when he saw the crowds, it tells us how he felt. He looked at them and he had compassion on them. He just had compassion. Jesus never once was like, oh, great. Oh, wonderful. More people. I've noticed this about America. I don't know, that's maybe too broad of a statement. Maybe Americans is a better one. Uh, being here for a couple years, my whole life, and seeing things, I've noticed this, that you live in a place, it's your hometown, right? And then you get used to how it is. And then you know what happens? People start moving in. I remember when that was an empty lot. I had a view. Now, I was born in Queens, New York. We had no views. Okay, so this is just more of a hypothetical. If another million people moved to New York, you wouldn't notice. Like, it doesn't really notice. But you know what? Actually, over the, well, in the 40 years that I've been alive, now if I go back, man, New York is packed compared to what I remember. I remember houses being single stories. And now everybody on our block, including our house now, has two stories. I remember where there'd be plenty of parking on the streets and now there's not a whole lot of parking. And then there's a park up the street and nobody parked next to the park and now everybody parks along the park. So many people. Just when you thought a place couldn't get more packed, right? 
I was hearing about uh, California. This seems to be the state to leave lately, right? And so uh, there's a, this great exodus of people from California. And they're going to different places. And I was listening to what the people in the states that are, are, are receiving the beloved Californians are saying. <laughs> whether, whether that be Arizona or Nevada or Oregon or, as it turns out, Idaho. So Idahoans, I'm sorry if I said that wrong. I think that's what they, yeah, Idahoans, right? Right? Anyway, we'll just go on. Um, there were some folks that were like, hey, we welcome everybody that comes. And then there was others that are like, they, there were some people that were moved to tears going, they, they're ruining it. And, you know, I think, I think there's this idea like, there's more people. It's infringing upon me. There's, I... I, I, and so it's, here's the, here's the temptation. I need to go someplace where there's less people. Um, if you know how to get there, guess what? Other people know how to get there too. And they're coming. Because you're not the only person to feel that way. Jim, are you saying that we shouldn't, people should move? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, to ask yourself what your motivation is when you do what you do. Jesus has a deep love for people. People are messy. People are crowded. They, 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 they bring troubles. Yes, because of sin. Absolutely. Well, more people than more sin. Yeah, that math works. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go someplace where there's less people. Yeah, but you're taking yourself. And remember, other people will follow you. So if your goal in life is, I've got to get away from the troubles of this world by constantly going away. I love what Jesus did here. Jesus went towards the crowds. Jesus had compassion for people. You got to love people. There's some Christians that I've talked to. I don't think they like people. They don't look like their savior. I understand people are messy. I understand that it's a relationship. I get it. And I have to fight that too. I mean, the joke is I keep moving to smaller and smaller places. We move from Queens, New York, to Prescott, Arizona, to Humboldt County. I'm like, I'm going to end up in some small village in Africa at some point in time. <laughs> or Mongolia. Jim, if you say it, it'll happen. Listen, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. But there's always people. And there's always challenges. And there will always be those moments where we have a decision as to whether we'll walk away from people or whether we will have compassion for people. Jesus saw crowds and he had compassion for them. That word compassion, it's a very long Hebrew, uh, Greek word that I'm not going to try to pronounce right now, but it, it has this uh, meaning of he felt it in his bowels. His bowels, his intestines? What they would mean when they said their bowels or intestines, it was what like we would say your gut. Like I feel, I've got this gut feeling. Jesus, when he saw people, he was moved in his gut. He was moved in the deepest part of who he was. He had sympathy and pity to the point where it moved him to do something about him. Some people, they're like, oh, that's really bad. They feel sorry for people in a situation, but they're not moved to compassion. Because compassion moves you to do something about it. Jesus was moved inwardly. It is a strong emotion. The Bible will use this word translated differently to mean tender mercy, affection, pity, or empathy. It's a visceral word. And so we have to realize this. The king is moved by people and their troubles. As that ambulance was going by, Jesus is moved by whatever that situation is. 
Ah, it's just one more thing. See, look at that. Look at our community. It's really, or 9.30, stuff's already falling apart in Humboldt County. Whoa, where's your heart? What's going wrong with you? Where do these calluses come from over your heart? And, and I get it, because I've done it too, is it's so much. The needs of people and the pain of people is so great that there's times we have a temptation of, I just want to move away, or I want to grow a couple extra layers of skin, because it's just too much to take on my own. You're right, it is too much for you to take on your own or for me, for myself. We're supposed to see these things and be moved by them so we can give them to the Lord. And there's times where we can do something about it and when we can, we should do that. You have to know this about your king. If you're a Christian, your king weeps with you. Your king knows your pain. He knows your pain. You don't go through anything alone. Even your painful times, he goes through it with you and he knows it. I want to show you this word, this compassion word here that we've been reading. You know, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. I want to show you a few verses in in Luke. They'll be on the screen that use the same Greek word. So you would get this idea of this compassion the king has, Jesus has. Luke 7, 12 and 13. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. Now we have some more details. The only son of his mother. Well, at least she's married and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. In that time, if a woman's husband passed away, she would be dependent upon her sons, if she had any sons. If her sons passed away, she would, in all um, effects, become a beggar. She couldn't support herself. There was no welfare system or any type of programs available other than what would come from a church. So she would end up going into a life of poverty and begging and and possibly dying. So Jesus sees the situation. Her only son is now dead and her husband has died. She's a widow. And look at this, verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, Jesus sees. What does he do after he sees? He had compassion, same word, from his gut. He looked at her situation and he was moved. And he said to her, do not weep. Later in that, he heals the son, raises him from the dead. But before the miracle of raising him from the dead, you see, Jesus first sees the situation and then he has compassion for people in painful situations. Luke 10, 35, the parable of the good Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, the man that was beat up on the road. And when he saw him, he had, same Greek word, compassion. The Samaritan was moved in his innermost being, for that man that was beaten up by robbers and left for dead at the side of the road. Are we moved by what we see around us? And we live in a community where there are some people that are literally on the side of the road. Oh, well, town's just falling apart. Or, ah, it's Humboldt County. Wait, where's your heart gone? Something has gone horribly wrong if we respond that way. Luke 15, verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. What story is this? This is the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son's been in sin, off in a far city. He's playing with the pigs. He's not playing. He's in misery with the pigs. Has a moment of realization, comes to his senses, goes back to his father's house. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and said, yeah, I cannot wait to tell you how wrong you've been. Wasted the inheritance. I knew you'd be coming back home. You should have listened to me. Dad's always right. 
That's not what the father did. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and what happened? He saw him and he felt compassion, moved in his deepest innermost being for his son that was lost, that's now coming back home. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. So you see what happens? He sees, he feels compassion, and then it leads to action. He runs, which was a disgraceful thing to do in that day and age. But the dad didn't care what anybody thought about him. He's going to run to his son because he's been moved. We read verse 36 again. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were, look at the description of these people. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I know we're looking at a lot of words here in in detail. I think they're so important because we have to slow down. Otherwise we go fast and we forget the people that are right around us in our world. Harassed, what does that mean? They were exhausted, weary, bewildered. Some have described a person who has just been beaten up and battered, like the pulp beaten out of them. And they're left there after being beaten to an inch of their life. Maybe it's somebody who's been, they're so scarred. The scar tissue has developed over their lives because they've been hurt over and over and over again in their life. They've been hurt by their family, people that they've trusted, betrayed by parents, betrayed by, by coworkers, betrayed by the church. And they're so scarred, they can't take it anymore and they are on the verge of collapse and not collapse like I'm going to collapse and it's okay, there's hope tomorrow. No, it's like collapse and I have no desire to get up again. I have no desire to ever get up again. When Jesus says he saw people and they were harassed, the kinds of people that he was seeing coming to him were people that were on there like I got, I've been beat up by this world. I have, if this doesn't work out, I have no other plan. I've got nothing else. And then the other word he uses, harassed and helpless, they can't care for themselves. I know we live in America and there's that idea of like, well, you know, there's opportunities for you to help yourself in this country. Yeah, there definitely are. I would absolutely agree. But you know, sometimes what's needed is a little bit of compassion for someone who can't help themselves. And sometimes what's needed is compassion for someone who may not be able to help themselves for quite some time. Oh, no, 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 sorry, I'm out, I'm out. No, no, <laughs> listen, I'm just going to give a little bit of myself. I'm not like going to go all out for somebody. Come on now, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know, be, uh, I'll do a socially acceptable level of, of compassion. But if you're asking me to like really help people, you know, if I like see somebody, like what, maybe go sit by them? I don't know. What if they got like, I don't know, lice or something, or I don't know. Well, get them a meal. Well, what if I like, you know, like, okay, I'll get them a meal and here you go. Here's a meal. There, there, there you go. Well, what happens if you hear the voice of the Lord that goes sit down and, and have a meal with them? Talk with them while they're eating. Oh, okay, no. Okay, no, that's, uh, that's a bit much. You know what that is? That's more than you, which is exactly where it should be. It's where it should be. Jesus saw people they couldn't help for themselves and, and some of these people will follow him for a long time. How long? As long as they live. I hope you realize this, that you and I also fall into this category. I can't help myself. There's things that Jim in his own strength cannot overcome. I don't have the strength. Well, God, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to be like a bit of a project for you. Not even for a little bit, but like for my whole life. And God's like, I know. That's okay. I'm going to love you through all of it. 
Do you realize, church, that's the kind of love we need to have for people. You're not supposed to put a time limit on it. I'm only going to give a little bit. Well, no, you give until Jesus says to stop. That's really it. Well, what if I have nothing left? I think Jesus can take care of you. I think we just kind of, we, we, we hold back. And we're not called to hold back. You know, I think it's a real privilege to live in Humboldt County. I really do. Now, notice how I didn't say it's a scenic thing or it's a beautiful weather thing or... No, no, I, this is the word. When people ask me about Humboldt County, it's a privilege to live in Humboldt County. You know why? Because our area is rich with opportunities to serve people. Remember, a Christian's life is not all about, you know, having the perfect house in the perfect neighborhood, in the perfect school district. And that's not, that's not what I'm reading here. What I'm reading is I was created to bring honor and glory to God, to worship Him and to serve Him. You know why I'm so honored to live in Humboldt County is because there's so many opportunities to serve people. You don't have to, you know, go five minutes without seeing an opportunity to be able to serve someone. Do you see it as a privilege? Do you see like God having just, because he could have chosen other people to come here and you may wonder, why God? Why? Why am I here? It's a privilege. It's, it's giving you an honor to serve people, to be like Jesus. Sometimes I'll talk to folks that don't live here and they're like, how do you live in Humboldt County? And I go, Jesus called us. Jesus called us. You know, the honest thing and, and um, living in Arizona where we lived, where we lived and the way that our life was set, our life was really easy. It's really easy. Grandparents lived just down the dirt road, the dirt road ended at the grandparents' house. So we kind of had built-in babysitters, you know, if that was the case. And um, We lived in a, uh, we lived out away from people. We could count the number of neighbors on two hands that we could see, you know, between us and the two miles to get to the highway. There was lots of sitting on the porch and watching the sun set and the moon rise and the stars come out, a lot of that. If you wanted to go deal with people, you drive into town 25 miles, head to work, uh, be at the church and serve people. But boy, you know what I really enjoyed? I really enjoyed after being at the church and serving people, that drive. Set the cruise and just drive for 30 minutes, 35 minutes, get home. And there's something special. You hit that dirt road and you're like, ah, home's coming up. Three and a half minutes on this dirt road and I'll be home. And you get there and it's like, this is good. And I was 30-something years old, early 30s, right? And it's like, this is good, this is great. And I remember before the Lord called us here, I remember like stopping just before I hit the dirt road and there's a gas station there. I remember stopping, there's a fire station right there and the friendly firefighters wave and it's like Americana, right? And you're just there and I parked and I looked and the sun was setting and the clouds were just right and I thought, God, I really love where I live. Like I said that. I stopped the truck and I said it out loud because I was really thankful for where I lived. Within six months of me saying that statement, we would have already moved here to Humboldt County. And I didn't know when I said that. This life is not what it's all about. There is a life to come that is going to be amazing. And nothing that you and I 
sacrifice for the Lord, will we ever look back from the shores of eternity, look back and go, I can't believe I did that for the Lord. He gypped me. You'll never say that. You'll never say that. You know, he gives the impression here, uh, this picture of sheep without a shepherd. Sheep, what did I write down? Sheep are doomed to a miserable life and a horrible death without a shepherd. Sheep are not designed to live without a shepherd. And so Jesus says, when I look at these people, they remind me of sheep with no shepherd who are doomed to a miserable life and a horrible death. I want to show you this picture of uh, the sheep that... uh, this is the sheep right here on the left. This sheep was lost for six years. Six years wandering. When it was found, a hiker was wandering and saw what looked like a clump of cotton. And he, it just looked odd. There shouldn't have been a clump of cotton on this. It wasn't even on a hillside. It was like in the woods or in this odd area. And this hiker went by and saw it. And as he got closer, he noticed he could hear sounds and labored breathing and like it was, it could barely stand. It could barely stand. And it's trying to survive and it's struggling and it had been struggling for years. And this hiker informed the local officials and they came. Multiple people required to carry the sheep. They had to sedate it because to be able to shear it, It was going to take such a long process that they had to sedate the animal to be able to do it. 30 pounds of wool. And survived. It could now see. It it was having a hard time seeing. It had, and it can't, it can't move it out of its eyes. It doesn't have the ability. If it were to end up upside down, it would have been dead. There is no way for it to right itself. So for six years, can't, gotta be, okay, any moment now, this could be it. This could be it. When Jesus looked at people, he saw people that are struggling. They don't know that this, is this going to be their last day? Will this be the one that does it? I see my problem, but I can't even do anything about my problem. I need someone else to help me with my problem that I clearly see. And it takes someone to see the problem, to have compassion, and then to be moved by that compassion. The sheep survived because he has someone to care for him. You really can't serve people unless you have compassion for them. You really can't. Otherwise, they just become a number. They just become part of some mechanism and some big machine. But when you see people the way God sees them and you have compassion for them, it moves you. You know, there's this Puritan, Thomas Watson. He wrote this in the 1600s. Thomas Watson had this quote. He said, we may force the Lord to punish us. In other words, you may do something where the God's like, okay, I'm going to have to, you know, there's consequences now. I'm going to have to discipline you. You may force our Lord to punish us. We may force our Lord to punish us, but we will never have to force him to love us. God has chosen to love you. You'll never have to force him to love you. You'll never have to go, God, I'm going to put you in this corner where you're going to have to love me. God's like, I've always loved you. I've always loved you. You may put me in a place, and again, we're not forcing God, but but I think we get the idea of this quote. We may get to a point in the way that we interact with God that God's going to discipline us. 
He doesn't want to, but if we put him in that position or we get to that point, then he will do what he needs to do. But here's the thing, you and I will never have to do with God. We'll never have to force him or try to convince him to love us. He's already made that decision to love you. God has already made the decision to love the people of this world. He loves them. Shouldn't we love them? Oh, I don't know. You're going to have to convince me why I should love them. Really? Really? You know, I think you don't see them the way God sees them then. Two more verses. Verse 37. We're going to change from a animal husbandry taking care of sheep to now agriculture. Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, changing the illustration, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So we saw a king who serves people, a king who sees people, and now we're going to see a king who listens. This king listens. You know, um, sometimes I'll, if we could put up Christy, I know in my notes I've got these completely out of order here. Could you put that, uh, that picture that has the need for workers? If we could start with the earliest one on that slide. Okay, so here's the reality, right? We see this here. We see this, and I don't think we could argue with the scriptures. We see that the need is great. The need, let's just start here in our community. The need in our community is great. It's overwhelming. And we can say this, the workers are few. Those two meet the needs of the people of our community, the greatest need of which is a savior. And then all of the physical needs and other things that are there, right? We can see the need is great and the workers are few. So, so what do we need to do? Well, here's some options here. You can raise some funds. You can brainstorm some ideas. You can inform others of the great need and the lack of workers. Definitely. You can definitely do those things when you see a need and you realize that the help is low. But then sometimes this is what happens. And maybe this is just me and none of you are affected by this. But maybe after trying to do these things or something along those lines, that doesn't work. So then you begin to use some, mm, how should we say, stronger methods. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to yell. I'm going to pout. Okay, that's it. I'm going to start guilt tripping people. Why? Well, because the need is great. And the workers are few. I've already tried the nice, nice, friendly things, but now we're just going to have to talk a little louder. In fact, pastor's going to have to start yelling now. Going to have to start yelling because that works all the time. Yelling's really effective, I've noticed. Okay. Jesus agreed. In fact, Jesus said it. We just read it. Jesus said the need is great. Jesus said the workers are few. So here's what we know. God sees it. The king sees the facts. He sees it. So what does Jesus tell us to do? Nothing on that list. Not that a few of those things on that list aren't good ideas. That's not what I'm saying. But what does Jesus tell us to do? It's in your Bible. Verse 38. He said, the harvest is plentiful. The labors are few. Therefore, start a fundraiser. Therefore, no. Therefore, look. It was so important, Christian. Therefore, pray. How many times do we go down the list of things and we haven't even prayed? And our Savior says, I know the need is great and I know the workers are few. Therefore, pray. Oh. Well, let me start this first and then I'll pray. No, you're getting the order wrong. You pray first. And after praying, God may have you do some of these things. And again, some of those things on that list aren't bad. But if you get that going first, you've got the order wrong. 
okay, I'll great, I'm going to pray. And now some in our community may go, well, pray, I'm just going to talk to the spirit of the whatever, right? No, Jesus is very specific. Verse 38, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. See, prayer has to be directed to someone. I'm just going to pray. To who? Because that really matters. Like, who are you talking to? Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So do you see what Jesus does there? He tells his followers what to do, who to pray to, and what to pray about. Man, I love Jesus. He's not here to keep us in the dark. He gives us specific directions in verse 38. Okay, so I'm not praying into the air to some unknown force. I'm praying to the Lord of the harvest. The one who owns the field. The one who created all these people. He is the one that I'm supposed to be talking to as I'm praying. I've noticed this, is that some Christians, they really struggle with praying to God. You know, this idea that I believe that God hears me, but I hardly talk to him. Wait, if you believe he hears you, then you should be talking to him. Well, you know, sometimes you'll I'll hear these are some quotes that I've heard over the years. Well, you know, prayer is prayer's a good, good backup. You know, I mean, I'll pray if I can't fix it. Oh, you've got the order wrong. You got the order wrong. Prayer's a backup? Oh, so your resources and your strength and your knowledge are, is the primary? That's the first thing you're going with? Not good. Not good. Here's something else I've heard. Oh, great. Yeah. What are you going to do about it? Just pray? Oh, great. Eyes roll. I've heard that too. Can't believe it. All we're just doing is praying about it. And you realize that that person doesn't realize how powerful prayer is. They don't realize it. They don't believe prayer is powerful. That statement doesn't come from a person who actually believes that prayer works. That, that actually believes that talking to the God who created everything, who knows everything, is the most effective way to start. And I have to say, the reason I know some of these quotes is because I've been known to have said them in my past. I remember when I was first a Christian, I'd see people like, oh, we're just praying about it. We're praying about it. I'm like, and I think I put the word just in there. Oh, you're just praying about it? You're just, you're just. And I, I, I thought like it meant that we're going to pray about it, but we're not going to do anything about it. Little did I know that they were preparing for launch. Prayer was preparing for launch. It was going, God, you're in charge of this launch. You're the one that knows which way we should go, how it should go, and when it should happen. So we're going to seek you and then you let us know. And you know what happens sometimes? You're there, T minus two minutes. You're like, yes, I knew it. Been praying about it. The opportunity's coming. Here it is, abort. No, no. You know what? Override. Just keep the countdown going. Just keep it going. Keep it going. And God's told us, abort. And we're just like, no, I'm in this too far. Wait, this isn't about you. If he says abort, you abort. And abort doesn't mean you never do it. It just means you're not doing it right now. Why? Because there's some critical thing that still needs to be done that just popped up. And until that is addressed, you can't launch. You know, this idea of praying and the importance of prayer. Jesus prayed. Our king prayed. If you think about this, if there was anybody that didn't need to pray, God in the flesh. Well, you know, I... I think I'm good. I don't think I need to pray. Jesus prayed. Luke talks about it too in Luke 6, verse 12 and 13. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. Wow, 
Wow. He went to a secluded place so he could talk to the Lord. He could talk to God. And then he went all night because the conversation continued through the night and he talked to God through the night. And then verse 13, why did he have to pray so much? Was there some important decision coming the next day? Look at this, verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. If the king prays before critical, important events like choosing the disciples, shouldn't his followers pray in their lives? And if God says abort, it's not because he doesn't love you. It's because as you get closer to the countdown, there's things that get revealed about you and I that don't show up earlier in the countdown. Oh yeah, T minus four years. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Lord, whatever you want to do. T minus one year. Oh man, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. T minus two months. Oh yes, yes. And now we start to see things surface in our life that God's like, I knew about that. I just needed you to see that. Abort. We're going to deal with that first. We're going to address these issues. And depending on how we do with that and the Lord's will, God's desire is that we would launch, that God would use us. Now, you remember that the, the imagery changed here. It changed from the sheep to harvest. Crops are time sensitive. You have to plant at a certain time, water at a certain time, feed at a certain time, harvest at a certain time. And you know, this good news of the gospel of Jesus, it's only good news if it gets there on time. After a person's died, hey, listen, I want to tell you, the harvest can only happen within a window of opportunity for each person. What's their window of opportunity? It's a small window. It's their short life. And you have a short window of opportunity to let people know about that. What's that short window of opportunity for you and I? Our short lives. Don't miss the window of opportunity that God has given you. Here's two quotes. One's from Vance Havner. He said, the tragedy of our time is that the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. People are dying eternally going to be separated from God. And yet we can go about our lives thinking this life is all that there is. We should realize that time is ticking for everyone. Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned by their choices to choose to refuse God, if if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. Do you see that imagery? Your arms wrapped around their knees? No, 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 no. Listen, listen. Let me tell you again. Please think about what I'm saying. Let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Jesus told his disciples that the Lord of the harvest is going to send out laborers into the harvest. And what we're going to see in chapter 10 and beyond is we're going to see Jesus launching the disciples. But before he launched them, he gave them instructions. He prepared them. There's more preparation than we think before the launch. And I've heard this. A measure of a church is not the number of people in the seats, but the number of people that are sent. Because you think about the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to reach people to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So where do we start? Well, we start in our backyard, right here in Humboldt County. And we work our way outwards through our state and our country and then the world. Is local ministry less important than global ministry? No. Ministry is ministry and it's important. God calls some to local ministry and God calls some to global ministry and some to in between. Each is important. 
So what are we supposed to do? Well, I'm supposed to pray. Jesus said that, okay, now that we see that the, the, the work, the, the, the need is great, the workers are few, so what do I need to do? I need to pray that God would send me. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said that you would pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers. Do you see there's something very important there? You're not praying that God would send you. You're praying that God would send whoever he wants to send, wherever he wants to send them. Now, here's the cool thing. You may be one of those people. I think sometimes we pray and go, God, I'd like to do this, rather than going, King, you choose where you'd like me to be. That afternoon after work, when I pulled up to the dirt road two miles from the house, and I said, man, I really love where I live. Little did I know that the king was going to say, Jim, you're going to find out about a church and your heart's going to be moved. And my heart was moved with compassion for the people of this fellowship. And I prayed that God would bring someone there. I wasn't praying for me. I wasn't. I wasn't. And God said, I'm glad you're praying. And in this case, Jim, it happens to be you that I'm sending. So what should you and I do now? I want to show you a few things here and then worship team, you can come on up. Here's a couple of things that you should do now. You and I should pray these, these things. We should pray to see what the king sees. So when you're in Humboldt County and you're in our community here, you should pray to see what the king sees. It starts with seeing. You got to see it first. Pray that you would see things differently than you've always been seeing them, especially if you've lived here for a while because it can become like wallpaper after a while. You may not even notice it. Pray to see what the king sees. Then pray to feel what the king feels when he sees that. And for some, you'll be like, well, I'm not really emotionally moved by a lot. Ask God to change your heart and you'd be surprised. When you start to realize that's somebody's son, that's somebody's daughter, that's somebody's mom, that's somebody's dad, that's somebody that's just burdened, they're in pain, they're struggling. And the third thing, Pray to send people to meet the needs that you see. Don't necessarily pray to send you, just pray to send people. And if God calls your name, then you go do it. But definitely pray for the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the field. Father, we come before you and thank you for your word and the clarity of your word. We also thank you for the order you give us in your word. You don't want us to be confused. You want us to not depend upon our resources. You want us to depend upon your unlimited resources. God, we admit, we ask for forgiveness. We ask for forgiveness when our hearts have not been in the right place. We ask for a heart transplant if our hearts have just been so calloused. Lord, turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. God, if our eyes have been uh, glazed over because we don't see the world the way you do, then God, we pray you give us new eyes. Give us an eye transplant too so that we might see people the way you see them. And God, we're going to ask you, you have all the resources, Lord, send out workers. I pray, God, that you would send workers out into our backyard here in Humboldt County. Lord, bring people from wherever you want to, to come to Humboldt County, to love the people of Humboldt County. And Lord, if you choose to use us in very specific ways here, then Lord, show us how and we'll do it. We thank you that you love us and we never have to force you to love us. You've made that decision and you've chosen to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.